we are in Acts chapter 22. We're going to cover verse 22 all the way through chapter 23 and verse 11 this week. What we'll find as we do that is that God preserves Paul's life by way of his Roman citizenship and his Pharisaical upbringing. So that can kind of function as an outline if you want. You can see that God preserves Paul's life by his pedigree and his past. His pedigree comes up as he is in the barracks being examined. And his past comes up when he is before the Sanhedrin being interrogated. That will form our outline in the barracks and before the Sanhedrin, two parts, and they ought to be clear as we work through the text this morning. And what we find that God preserves Paul's life because he has plans for Paul's life. God has planned to bring glory to himself through Paul. He's not finished with him yet. What I, I would like us to walk away learning or thinking about, and this would be your main idea this morning, is that God has planned your life for his glory. God has planned your life for his glory. Therefore, and this is the exhortation, we can live with confidence in God's providence. Because God has planned your life for his glory, you can live with confidence in his providence. Providence is is a theological word. It just means God's careful ordering of all things. God's ruling over all of reality in a very personal way. When when we understand that God's planned our lives for his glory, we, we recognize that our job is not to make everything perfect all the time. We can simply relax, get happy, and face the future with confidence. Our Lives are not determined by impersonal forces. They are ordered by our Father. Things don't just happen to us by chance. Chance, after all, is just a word used to describe mathematical possibilities. It, in and of itself, has no existence and is nothing, whereas God is someone. Luck is dumb. God speaks. God has ordered everything together according to his purposes. History is unfolding according to plan. Your life is unfolding according to God's plan. Indeed, God's providence is mysterious, how he is able to control all things and order all things just how he wants, while at the same time not doing violence to our own volition and will. And it is marvelous to be rejoiced in. Our God is so entirely good. And he has ordered Paul's life. It reminds me of of Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, where the psalmist says, You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I'm unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, 
you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. Indeed, Proverbs 16.9 rings true. A man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And the Lord has directed Paul's steps right to the top of the steps of the barracks where he looks out onto a Jewish mob and prepares to speak. Indeed, we went over his defense speech last week and came right up to the point where they are about to rail against him. Before we get to that, let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together here in obedience to your word. We thank you that your commands are not burdensome, but a way to life and to holiness and ultimately happiness. We thank you that the holier we are, the closer to you we are, the happier we will be. Pray that you would shift our hopes away from earthly things which are fading and fix them firmly on the kingdom that is coming and that has already begun to break in. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see soberly and with eyes of faith this morning. Pray that you would help us to recognize that your invisible hand is at work just as it was in Paul's day. That you are at work in us right now, that you haven't retired, that you haven't fallen out of your prime or fallen off, but you are still at the peak of your powers. You are still God, and you are good at it. And so we come humbly before you this morning, asking that you would give to us exactly what we need, knowing that you will. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So, so we are picking up kind of midstream, mid-story here. Uh, Paul, remember, has been making his way back into Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has compelled him to go there and also told him, when you get to Jerusalem, uh, you are going to face afflictions and sufferings. That prophet Agabus came to Paul and he took his belt off and tied it around his arms and his, his legs and said, whoever this belt belongs to is going to be bound when he gets to Jerusalem. It was Paul's belt. And they're all like, Paul, don't go. And he says, Friends, you don't understand. I'm going, I'm prepared not only to suffer, but also to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. For the sake of Jesus, I am going to Jerusalem, even if it means my death, because he is worth it. My life is to honor my God. And so Paul rolls into Jerusalem. He tells the elders there everything that he has been doing, all the great success that God has been bringing to his ministry. He's saying, I've been preaching to the Gentiles that if they repent of their sins and they trust in Jesus who died for those sins and rose from the dead, that they too can have the newness of life, that they can have the hope of the resurrection, peace with God, and they're believing it. They all glorify God because of Paul's report. And then they say, Paul, there is this other thing going on. There is a rumor swirling around that you are anti-Jewish. 
that your gospel requires Jews to no longer participate in ceremonial aspects of the law. It's as if you're saying, uh, if you're a Jew and become a Christian, you can't circumcise yourselves, can't circumcise your children because that's really bad. Paul says, well, that's, that's not true. And they say, well, we've got a plan. We want you to participate in this vow with these four brothers who are going to conclude their vow. We want you to pay for their haircuts in the temple. And that'll show everybody that you still think it's okay to participate in Jewish customs. That Jews don't have to give up their Jewishness to become Christians any more than Gentiles have to give up their Gentileness to become Christians. That you can be equally united in Christ and still participate in these customs. And so Paul says, great, I'll go, I'll pay for haircuts. And on his way to the temple, this group of, of Jews from Asia or Ephesus where he was ministering, well, well, they see him wandering about and at some point they see him with Trophimus, who he had rolled with in Ephesus. And they say, this means, wrongly say, that Paul took him into the temple where he ought not be. And so they cry out, everyone look, here is the man that teaches against our law, who teaches against our temple, who is anti-Jew. He's defiled the temple. He took a Gentile in there. Let's get him. And they all work together to kill him. And that's what we see in uh, chapter 21, verse 31. As they were trying to kill him. And so at this point, we find a commander of Roman soldiers who takes notice of this, and he goes down and he saves Paul's life providentially, according to the plan of God. And so he takes Paul into custody, and eventually Paul, on his way up to the barracks, says, can I speak to the crowd, please? And the commander grants him this right. And so he gives the first of five defense speeches in Acts. There's four more the rest of the way through Acts make up a large part of it. And so Paul gets up, and he makes three points. He says, I am a Jew just like you. I have been where you are. But then I met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and that changed everything. I met God. I now have a relationship with the God who made us. I now understand that Christianity is the proper end of Judaism. That all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That the reversal of the curse of death comes through faith in Christ who holds the keys of death in Hades. This has changed everything. And this Jesus has told me that the promise isn't just for us Jews, but it's for the Gentiles too. And he told me to go. But when the crowd hears that the promise is for the Gentiles too, they don't like that. There's really bad blood between Jew and Gentile. And that's where we come into our text today in verse 22. They can stand Paul's rambling no longer. They listen to him up to this point. Then they raise their voices shouting, Wipe this man off the face of the earth. He should not be allowed to live. As they were yelling and flinging aside their garments and throwing dust into the air. This crowd is enraged. They are tearing their clothing and flinging dust into the air as they call for Paul to be killed. The tearing of their garments and the throwing of dust. 
is to demonstrate that they have been greatly offended. That they believe Paul to be a blasphemer. And even as, as those clouds of dust kind of fill the air, I think the imagery we have is, is that of the stoning of Stephen. If you just look back in verse 20, um, Paul brought this up. When the blood of your witness, Stephen, talking to Jesus, was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. And now we have an angry mob who wants to persecute the church, just as they did Stephen, just like Paul once persecuted the church, only now Paul is the target. And so Paul, just like in his speech, saying, I've been where you are. I've persecuted the church. And now they are persecuting Paul because he's saying, I'm with Jesus now. And so it's almost, you almost have this image as if they're trying to look for rocks and there aren't any around, so they're throwing these dust clouds in the air. And they want Paul dead. That's the point. They were trying to kill him. The commander saved him, and they still want him dead. Can you imagine being so angry? Perhaps you've never torn your garments or thrown dust in anger, but perhaps you have torn apart some relationships and carelessly thrown about words and slights, maybe even objects, maybe even a shoe or some household item. And then dismissed it as just a, you know, just a temporary lapse. Just a little outburst of anger. Just a, a little road rage. Just a, a little disagreement. Friends, examine your hearts. Anger will kill your joy. It will wither your affections for Christ and for others. When you harbor anger, you quench the Spirit of God and you feed your sinful flesh. Think of Galatians 5. We have that great contrast between the flesh and the Spirit. In verse 19, Paul says, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy. And here's the one, often overlooked. Outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things, as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a serious thing to give yourself to anger. It is a serious thing to hold anger in your soul. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
Friends, if we want to be people of the Spirit who are following after Jesus, we must be serious about our holiness and committed to, as Paul says in Colossians, putting to death whatever is earthly in us. I don't know if you've ever been angry like this. I think most of us probably have. I have. We must be on guard lest our flesh and our sinfulness and our selfishness outgrow the work of the Spirit within us. At which point we have to call into question our very salvation. Put to death anger. Don't let it blind you, as the crowd does here, to what God is doing around you. Anger will make you deaf to reason. Kill it. As they were yelling and flinging aside their garments and throwing dust in the air, the commander ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks, directing that he be interrogated with the scourge to discover the reason they were shouting against him like this. So the commander says, we are done playing games. I am going to get to the bottom of this. We need to figure out what all of this fuss is about. And so he goes, um, um, Jack Bauer in 24, or maybe uh, you saw Batman the Dark Knight back in the day. He's like just beating up the Joker, trying to get information. He decides that he's going to interrogate Paul with force. He's going to do it with the scourge. And the scourge was a, a brutal, brutal weapon. They have like a, a wooden handle, and it had long leather thongs that came out from it. And into that leather thong was woven pieces of metal and of bone. Okay? And so what would happen is, is the person who was being scourged would be stretched out, and then this whip would be raked across their back. And so with the skin you know, taut, it was just ripe, and this instrument to be torn apart. It wasn't uncommon for people to die from this. Indeed, it was illegal to use this kind of torture on a Roman citizen. This is going to become a very important piece of information here in a second. As they stretched Paul out for the lash, he said to the centurion standing by, Is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went and reported to the commander saying, What are you going to do? This man is a Roman citizen. The commander came to Paul and said, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes. The commander replied, I bought my citizenship for a large amount of money. But I was born a citizen, Paul said. So those who were about to examine him withdrew immediately. The commander was too alarmed. The commander, too, was alarmed when he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Roman citizenship was prestigious. It was not normal. It was an elite kind of status symbol. We get this confused today because you're born in a country and then typically you have citizenship there. But not everyone born in Rome or around Rome got to share in this status of being a Roman citizen. It was very special. It brought you all kinds of protections like we see here. And this bit from the commander about, I bought my citizenship for a large amount of money, it's, it's not like you could go down to um, 
your local courthouse and say, I would like some Roman citizenship, please. It's about 12 grand or, you know, whatever it is in the time. No, 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 you couldn't just buy it. It couldn't be bought. What he's saying is, is it was bribed, right? I had to give a guy some money and then we did this and that and then I became a Roman citizen. The cost was high. I was feeling out, Paul, how did you become a Roman citizen? How, did you bribe yourself into this? And Paul says, no, 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 no. I was born a citizen, which is like a level up, okay? So this is, he's a really important prisoner all of a sudden and the commander has had him bound. He was about to have him scourged. Cicero said that for a Roman citizen to be scourged was an abomination. It came with the penalty of death. So had this commander scourged Paul and someone discovered that Paul is a Roman citizen, he would have faced the likelihood of his own death. And so Paul, with this seemingly small question, is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is uncondemned, not only saves his own life, but also the life of this commander. And they all kind of go, all right, we're done. We're done messing with Paul. Two observations. First, it is not wrong to assert your rights. Yes, The Christian life has times where we are to lay down our rights for the good of the body of Christ and for others, but that does not mean we are to always lay down our rights. There is a difference between laying down your rights willingly and for um, the good of others and being a victim of injustice. And so Paul here recognizes the injustice that's going on and he asserts his right as a Roman citizen. Christianity is not a religion built on some kind of masochism. It's not about pursuing the greatest possible pain. We're not ascetics. Christians are not to seek out suffering. Yes, yes, we're to be ready to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. But we are not to hope for or seek suffering. That is foolishness. It's not wrong to assert your rights to protect life and to promote justice. And so, uh, maybe a contemporary example, we have rights and privileges as Christians in our own country, thankfully. And so, when um, a cake baker doesn't want to celebrate same-sex marriage because that violates his belief in Holy Scripture, he can appeal to the Supreme Court and for now, win and protect that right. Or when a company um, like Hobby Lobby doesn't want to finance the killing of children in the womb by government mandate, they can appeal their case, like the cake baker, to the Supreme Court and win. There are rights and protections in place for the time being. And so Christians are not wrong. You are not wrong to assert those rights so that justice might be promoted. Now we have brothers and sisters all over the globe who are not privy to the same kind of rights, who are under oppressive regimes. And so their interaction with government looks a little bit different. But, but the point here is that it's not, not like Christians are so always pursue suffering. There are times when we are to to stand up and to fight what is right. 
Yes, we are to turn the other cheek and we are um, not to escalate individual tensions. But at the same time, we are called to do justice and to long for what is right. And it takes wisdom to know when it is a proper time to lay down your rights, when it is a time to assert them. I think also this this text, there are little flashback points as I read it this week where I was just reminded of the life of Jesus, a number of them actually. Uh, And this is one of them where we've got Paul who is asserting his life and his life is going to be preserved. And then you juxtapose that with Jesus who intentionally lays down his rights so that he might die for the sins of the world. Paul speaks up, whereas Jesus remains silent. Both having angry Jewish mobs crying out for their deaths. Think of John 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. That's scourged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and clothed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him and saying, Hail the king of the Jews! And were slapping his face. Pilate went out again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Here is the man. When the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate responded, Take him and crucify him yourselves, because I find no grounds for charging him. We have a law, the Jews replied to him, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it had not been given from above. This is why the one who has handed me over to you has the greater sin. You see what Jesus is saying in his circumstance, even as he remains silent, is that nothing can happen to me apart from the will of God. The reason you have authority over me right now is because God has brought me to this place. The reason you have authority over me right now is because of God's plan and God's purpose. And likewise, Paul is able to assert his Roman citizenship and preserve his life because he is right where God wants him to be, serving the purposes of God. He wasn't just born a Roman citizen by happenstance. No, no. God planned that. Second observation. God plans for and equips for every experience. He plans your every experience and he equips you for it. And this means, like we said earlier, that you can relax a little bit. You don't have to stress out over every tiny thing in your life. Did I do the right thing? Did I do the wrong thing? No, you can simply obey God's word and follow uh, the path that he's laid out before you. 
and know that no matter which step I take, I can't walk myself out of the will of God. I can't get out of it. Everything unfolds according to his plan. The hairs on my head are numbered. Sparrows and spiders do not die apart from his divine providence. And so Paul has been brought here and he was equipped in this moment with his Roman citizenship to navigate the situation in a way that was honoring to God. God was at work in Paul's circumstance, in Paul's suffering. What I want to say is that God is at work in your life, in your circumstances. He has equipped you to do whatever it is you need to do, wherever you are, right now, today. And so maybe you have a difficult relationship in your life. God has given you what you need to navigate that relationship. Perhaps um, you are raising children. God has given you what you need to teach your children to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Maybe you have aging parents that need cared for. God has given you what you need to care for them. Whatever is going on in your life, God has given you what you need to get through that situation. Even if what he's given you is a sense of desperation that you might call out to him and be strengthened. His strength is made perfect in weakness. God is at work. I was reminded of this last week. A, a, a brother was visiting us from out of town in New Jersey, and he said to me after church, just a, a sweet little reminder, brother, God is at work here. He told me multiple times, God is at work here. And I thought about how God has been at work in our church, and I was, I was greatly encouraged. And as pastors are likely to do, I guess, or predisposed for, I had to encounter some of my own worries in regards to our church. And I went, you know what? God is at work. Things are unfolding according to his plan. I, I can relax. I can get happy and live confidently knowing that this is going to work out according to plan. Friends, likewise, he, he's, he's at work in our church and he's at work in your lives. You are not sovereign. God is. That seems really simple. It's really simple. But we live contrary to it all the time. God is sovereign. I am not. Like, write that down. Remind yourself of it daily. God is sovereign. I am not. And all of a sudden, you'll realize that some of the things you're worrying about and trying to control would require that you be sovereign and God not be sovereign. And that's just not the case. He is in control. So you're not called to fix everything. You're not called to make everything just the way you would like it. Everything is just the way God has planned it. You can trust him. Even, even in the deepest of grief, you can Trust him. This is the God who planned the cross. Oh, hey, the, the cross doesn't seem like it's unfolding according to plan. It was. 
So Acts 2, 23-24. Though Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you lawless people nailed him to the cross and killed him. And yet God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. We might not be able to see how God is at work, but is it really that hard to admit that God might be a little bit smarter than you are? That he knows what he's doing. And we we can relax and trust him. That's how the Christian is able to smile through our tears. Because we know that God is storing them up. That he's going to transform them into an eternal weight of glory that makes our suffering seem really, really small. I use this illustration of uh, if you were, if Warren Buffett left all of his money to you, all of his wealth to you, and then he passed away, you didn't know, and you just get a letter in the mail, phone call, and, and it turns out to be legit. Hey, Warren Buffett has left his money to you. You just need to go um, to Wells Fargo down here in Nellie's Ford and you can, you can claim that. That money will be put in your account. And then on the way to the Wells Fargo, you get a flat tire. See, what, what doesn't happen in that circumstance is you don't go, oh, woe is me. This is the worst day of my life. I've got a flat tire. How, God, could you let me get a flat tire? No, you don't care about the flat tire. You're like, yeah, it kind of is not great. I'm going to the bank. There is an inheritance waiting for me beyond all comparison. Friends, this is an image of the Christian life. Even our greatest sufferings, and they are great and they are real and we should deal with suffering, but they pale in comparison to the inheritance that is waiting for us on the other side of our death. They pale in comparison to the kingdom of God, all the riches of heaven which are ours in Christ. When when we can get our minds on the fact that there is a resurrection coming and that there's nothing wrong with us right now that it won't fix, it will change how we engage with everything, including suffering. We recognize that that God has written this story, and yes, there's some drama along the way, but guess what? He's also written a happy ending. Death dies. Jesus reigns. And those who follow Jesus share in his glory and in his reign. Friends, God is at work on that macro scale in the universe, And he is at work on that micro scale in your life. So relax. Live with confidence in his providence. I need to move on. Verse 30. So they try to interrogate Paul. They find out he's a Roman citizen. They think that's a bad plan. And so 
the commander calls the Jews together, and that's the Sanhedrin, Pharisees, and Sadducees together. And this is what happens, verse 30. The next day, since he wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and instructed the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to convene. He brought Paul down and placed him before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. The high priest Ananias ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You're sitting there judging me according to the law, and yet in violation of the law, you order me to be struck? Those standing nearby said, Do you dare revile God's high priest? Paul responded, I did not know he was the high priest, brothers. For it is written, You must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So a few things going on here. Paul begins to defend himself, saying that he has a clear conscience before God. He's done nothing wrong. The high priest thinks that he's lying, and so he has the, the taste slapped out of his mouth. Paul then comes back with what amounts to a curse. God is going to strike you. He's going to strike you for striking me. And he calls this man or identifies him as a whitewashed wall. Very, very similar to Jesus' imagery of a whitewashed tomb. It looks good on the outside, but on the inside is filled with decay and the stench of death. It is really interesting. Paul's words here seem to prove to be prophetic. It's in the year 66, this man who had Paul slapped across the face ends up hiding in an aqueduct of Herod's palace during the Jewish revolt and is killed by the rebels. It really is interesting. It may have been prophetic, but it seems as if Paul spoke it in sin. Verse 4 says, do you understand this is the high priest? And then Paul says, hey, I didn't know it was the high priest. And then he quotes scripture, it's from Exodus, and it just very plainly, you must not speak evil of the ruler of your people. And so we come to kind of a small interpretive issue here. When we ask the question, how on earth does Paul not know this guy's the high priest? And so there are all kinds of what I consider kind of wild explanations where, well, Paul had really bad eyesight and so he couldn't see it was the high priest and the high priest wasn't in his normal getup and so he didn't recognize him because his clothes weren't right. I don't think those are good explanations. Uh, I've narrowed it to two that I think are good. If you adopt one of the other ones, that's fine. We can still be friends. This is not a huge point. Uh, but but two, two explanations. One is that Paul is responding in verse 5 sarcastically, Right? Like, I did not know such a vile man could possibly be the high priest. Of course I wouldn't say anything bad of such a man. It's written. You must not speak evil of the leader of people. I just didn't know. It wasn't evident because he's so wicked, right? That's, that's the sense. Second option, that Paul sincerely didn't know it was the high priest. Perhaps there was a commotion. There's a lot of stuff going on. For some reason, a reason we might not even know, he just sincerely didn't recognize it was the priest. And as much as I love sarcasm and almost always go that route on interpretation, I, I, just, I don't think that's the case here. I just think Paul was sincerely mistaken. And if he is, I think there are two things we can learn. One, that we ought to respect the authorities that God has put above us, even if they are not good authorities. 
that they are worthy of our respect and of civil engagement. This is another reason that I think Paul was sincerely wrong here. Is there's kind of this subtext throughout Luke and Acts um, of that Christianity is no threat to the Roman government. So if we remember who Luke is writing to, he's writing to most excellent, which is a title for a Roman official, most excellent Theophilus. And so it seems that one of these implicit goals of Luke is to show that Christians submit to governing authorities. And this would kind of go against that grain a little bit. And so I think Luke is showing us, and indeed we, we have a model from Paul that it is good for us to submit ourselves to government and to proper authorities. Paul reiterates that in Romans 13. You can read that this afternoon and discuss um, what that means for us. And maybe even if you want to get really crazy, you can think, hey, was the American Revolution uh, the right thing to do based on Romans 13? That's for homework if you really want to get into it and think hard about it. But we do see that Christians respect authority. And then secondly... I think we can just learn we should repent when we're wrong. Like, if he is sincerely mistaken, which I think he is, they say, do you know who you were talking to? He says, no, I didn't. We shouldn't, I shouldn't speak evil about my leader. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. My bad. Don't let the words, I'm sorry, get caught in your throat. Be quick to apologize. Like, like you're a Christian. If you're, if you're a Christian, like, I'm sorry should be easy for you. Like, your spiritual life is built on the idea that you are continually repenting of your sin, that you are imperfect, and that you need a Savior. So don't pretend otherwise. Be quick to repent. Paul quickly repents here. And then the scene shifts a little bit here in verse 6. When Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and neither angel nor spirit. But the Pharisees affirm them all. The shouting grew loud, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party got up and argued vehemently, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? When the dispute became violent, the commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down, take him away from them, and bring him into the barracks. Paul is a savvy guy. You know, he, he realizes, he kind of remembers, oh yeah, this group over here is Pharisees, this group over here is Sadducees. And the Pharisees sometimes get a bad rap because they go toe-to-toe with Jesus in the Gospels. But what we must remember is that at the time, the Pharisees are the good guys. They interpret the Bible pretty conservatively, pretty faithfully. They, they believe all of the Hebrew Scriptures. They believe in the unseen realm of angels and demons. They believe that, that God is at work. They, they even believe in the resurrection of the dead. Whereas the Sanhedrin, well, they only believe the Pentateuch. They're in bed with Rome. They run the, the temple. And, you know, they're mostly aristocrats, and people just really don't like them that much. 
But the thing that, that we're pointed to here in the text is that they deny specifically the unseen realm and the bodily resurrection. Their, their um, posture towards that is, if I can't see it, it doesn't exist. Okay? And so Paul says, this is precisely the point of doctrine that I'm going to press in on. I know that this is an explosive area where there's plenty of disagreement, and so this is where I'm going to go. And this is very clever. Paul says, I am on trial, I'm before you, I'm being persecuted because I believe in the hope of the resurrection. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for sins, and that he's been resurrected, and that everybody who repents of their sin and puts their faith in him can have eternal life right now, can have peace with God right now, and will one day be resurrected like him. And so it's for the hope of the resurrection that I'm being persecuted. You see what he's done, right? He's asserted that resurrection is a possibility that he believes in, and he's identified himself with the Pharisees. And he's saying that the hope of the resurrection that the Pharisees have looked towards or believed in as a possibility has already happened in Christianity. And so there's this this claim underneath of it that Christianity is the proper end of Pharisaical Judaism. That Christianity is the completion of this Judaism. And that Paul is just living faithfully. He's a better Jew than they are because he believes in the Jewish Messiah. Right? That's, that's what's, what's happening here on one level. On the other level, the Pharisees just go, hey, you know what? The resurrection is a possibility. If that's why he's here, who knows? Maybe an angel or a spirit did talk to him. We don't know. He, I don't see any evil in him. Why is he being persecuted? And the Sadducees are obviously on the other side of the fence. And long story short, they go after one another. And eventually, Paul is taken away by the Roman commander. And we see once more that God is preserving Paul's life by moving all these various pieces around. He had his Roman citizenship so that he could be delivered from torture. He had his past as a Pharisee at the ready to deliver him from this interrogation before the Sanhedrin. And let's not forget how he used the Roman commander to deliver Paul from the crowd that was about to kill him before all of this even started. Friend, God is at work. And Paul is not allowed to die yet because God has planned Paul's life for his glory and he has much more for Paul to do before he dies. That's That's good news. Listen, you're going to die one day. That's bad news, but but you're going to die. And the good news is, is you will not die a second before God wants you to. God has planned your life, just as he planned Paul's life, for his glory. Therefore, you can live with confidence in his providence. You can relax, get happy, and face the future confidently, without all kinds of worry, knowing that God is in control, that his invisible hand is at work in your life. You can be encouraged. And Paul here seems to be discouraged, actually, after all of this has gone down. And he gets another visit from the risen Jesus in verse 11. The following night, the Lord, that's Jesus, stood by him and said, 
Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. I love this. Jesus just shows up and says, take heart. Be courageous. Keep pursuing me. We're not done yet. Jesus stands by Paul in the midst of his afflictions. Brothers, sisters, Jesus Christ stands by you, even now. And you can know that he stands firmly by you because he hung for you. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. He is with you and he is for you. He has redeemed you. God has said to those who have faith in Christ, as we read in Isaiah 43, you are mine. He's created you for his glory. So be encouraged. God is at work. Non-Christian, it is not by happenstance that you are here. God has brought you here. Pray that you would listen to his word and respond with repentance and faith. That you too might know this wonderful God that we serve. Brothers and sisters, God has planned your lives for his glory. Live with confidence in his providence this week. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have adopted foolish people like us into your family merely because you love us, because you do whatever pleases you and you have decided to set your affections on us. We thank you that when we recognize that we belong to you, we can persevere the greatest of trials because of your presence. That we can drink deeply from life's delights because of your presence, knowing that they are but foretastes of what is to come. Lord, our hope is in the resurrection of Christ. We pray that you would help us to live as if we really believe that. To live believing the truth that you have ordered all things for your glory, including our lives. Pray that you would help us to confidently walk into and through each and every experience because we know that your kind hand is directing our steps. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.